yesterday we went as far if I remember correctly the base of nothingness is that right? so what we are looking at here are of course the um, immaterial jhanas the rupa jhanas and the interesting aspect of this particular sutta is the fact that the Buddha says that there is a consideration between each of the jhanas now there can be and there doesn't have to be one doesn't have to consider but one can and in this case here consideration is that starting with sensual desires now or again in the future forms now or in the future and even perception of the sensual desire or perception of the form now in the future are not peaceful that there's something more desirable to come and so one sees that each of the bases that one reaches should have something better than that so to say still um, if one lets go of this particular one one can come to another one so space consciousness then space and consciousness then dissolve into nothingness and in nothingness the interesting aspect is that three different ways of consideration are given the first one, the common one that was the same as for all the others namely that all these that I've just mentioned are not desirable then that there's no self obviously in consciousness and space when they're infinite and therefore one can enter into nothingness and the third consideration is that one doesn't own anything or anything or anyone or that anything is owned within one by anyone so three different considerations now we have often said that these considerations which we can call insights can arise after having been in those states of meditation which they do however because each one already brings some insight that insight is then used to get to the next one so it can be used as a consideration as an insight in between to direct the mind deliberately if that's not necessary it doesn't have to be done that way if one can do it also the um, imperturbable are here called the fourth the fourth jhana and also the fifth and then infinite space and the fourth and then infinite consciousness and nothingness are then the, the, uh, the formless realms now we come to the last one neither perception or non-perception again a noble disciple considers thus sensual desires here and now sensual desires and lives to come perception of sensual desire perception of sensual desire and lives to come 
form here now, form in life to come, perception of forms here now, perception of forms in life to come, perception of the imperturbable, perception of the base consisting of nothingness, all our perceptions. When all these perceptions cease without remainder, that is more peaceful, that is a superior goal. That is to say, the base consisting of neither perception nor non-perception. So now what is being looked at is that any kind of perception is not very peaceful. And because this is already a perception of the base of nothingness, it has to come now to neither perception nor non-perception. And so when he enters upon this way and abides in it, often his mind acquires confidence in this base. Once there is full confidence, then he either enters upon the way to rebirth in the base consisting of neither perception or non-perception, or else he decides to perfect understanding by reaching arahanship. On the dissolution of the body after death, it is possible that that consciousness of his which leads on to rebirth may pass on upon rebirth to the base consisting of neither perception or non-perception. This is called the way directed to the base consisting of neither perception or non-perception. However, it doesn't tell you what it's like, does it? Well, I would imagine that if somebody had asked the Buddha, what is it like? He would have said, well, why don't you find out yourself? Which is something that he often said, not in those words, but with that meaning. Um, it's a state which has in it none of the sense contacts and no feeling. So one doesn't perceive, perceive anything in particular, but it's also not a state where there is no perception at all, because obviously the uh, body and mind are alive, awake and aware. So it is a feeling of going higher and being totally at ease, at peace, but that is only known afterwards. Very difficult to say anything about this particular base. It can also, instead of having a feeling of going higher, it can have a feeling of folding within oneself completely. And one of its criteria by which we could know that we have come to the eighth jhana is if it follows directly upon the seventh. If one comes out of it and feels energized, that would be the proper result. If one comes out of it and feels tired, that is definitely the wrong result, and there was either sleepiness or trance. All of that is possible. For a very experienced meditator, it no longer is a danger. In the beginning, it's always in the offing somewhere. The mind that hasn't been trained long enough is a mind that still thinks when there's nothing happening it should go to sleep. However, having done seven jhanas, one would imagine that the mind is very fully awake and aware. So it's hardly 
useful to drop into the eight without having gone through the others because one can't be sure. The onus of the recognition lies on the meditator. Whatever you tell your teacher, it is still perception. And of course, I try to understand it as well as I can, but the onus of recognition lies on oneself. What is being said here again is that this particular base of meditation leads one on in at death to a rebirth on that plane. Why? Because the consciousness is of that kind. And the consciousness finds its realm just like water finds its level. So a consciousness which has neither perception nor non-perception at its base and probably can do so at death would definitely find itself because of its consciousness on that level which is one of the four Brahma levels at this point one could say it's one of the highest Brahma levels now actually comes a very interesting aspect of this sutta when this was said the Venerable Ananda asked the Blessed One, Venerable Sir, here a bhikkhu enters upon this way. If I were not, and naught were mine, I shall not be, and naught will be mine. And what there is has come to be that I abandon, and thus he obtains equanimity. Venerable Sir, does such a bhikkhu reach Nibbana? It's very interesting, isn't it? Because it sounds very much like the questions that are being asked to this day. Maybe the uh, expressions in English are not identical. We don't use the word not, and uh, we don't uh, repeat ourselves in this manner. But otherwise, if I do this, will I get Nibbana? That's all he wants to know. Because he wasn't enlightened, Ananda. He was a stream enterer. So he says, if I were not, and not were mine, although if I am not, and nothing is mine, and if I shall not be in the future, and nothing will be mine, and what there is now, and has come to arise, I abandon it all, and he obtains equanimity, will such a bhikkhu reach nibbana? I mean, he's obviously asking about himself, I mean, he's talking to a third person, but we do that all the time, you know. If one does this, does one get that? And I want to know, am I going to get nibbana? Because he does understand that bit. He knows but he hasn't obviously not done it. Perhaps one such bhikkhu might reach Nibbana Ananda. Perhaps another such bhikkhu might not reach Nibbana. <laughs> now we know, huh? Okay, Venerable Sir, well, he's not satisfied, of course. Venerable Sir, what is the cause, what is the reason why one might and another one might not? Well, here, Ananda, if Viku enters upon this way, if I were not and naught were mine, I shall not be and naught will be mine, and what there is has come to be that I abandon, and thus he obtains equanimity. He relishes that equanimity, welcomes it and accepts it, and when he does it, then his consciousness depends on that equanimity, clings to it. A Viku who is affected by clinging does not attain Nibbana, Ananda. So this is a very important aspect of the Buddha's teaching 
and we, we should try and remember that for any attainment never mind Nibbana any attainment peace and quiet in the meditation peace and harmony within one's heart whatever one clings to prevents it it doesn't matter what one clings to whether one's clinging to a house or whether one is clinging to a tape recorder or whether one is clinging to this body or mind all clinging prevents peacefulness so here we have Nibbana which we would like to get not to be gotten of course but anyway Ananda is in the same pickle that we're in I mean he'd like to get it you know <laughs> and so he wants to know what, how to do this so the Buddha says so this bhikkhu who has thought about that if I'm not and nothing belongs to me and in the future I'm not and nothing will belong to me and if whatever has come to be I'll let go and then he gets very equanimous about it feels very peaceful, very great deal of equanimity. And then he's really, you know, likes this equanimity. No way to have Nibbana. It's impossible to have Nibbana. Because at any clinging prevents Nibbana. Even the clinging to something as exalted as equanimity. But on the other hand, it's really catch-22. Because equanimity is one of the seven factors of enlightenment. So if one doesn't, hasn't got it, one can't get enlightened anyway. But then, having got it, clinging to it, prevents one. And this clinging, one can look at clinging as if it was very fine material gossamer threads. Now, some people, of course, have more than gossamer threads. They've got uh, thick ropes. But if we think of meditators, it's gossamer threads. And these gossamer threads are holding us in a position. This is a position which we occupy. And in that position, we have certain ways of moving in that position and getting and changing that position of ourselves. We first feel totally disoriented. And yet, when we get used to that new position, then we have, again, the hanging on to the new position. Because we feel very insecure without a position. It doesn't matter what it is. Anything. I'm a good meditator, I'm a bad meditator. I'm on a spiritual path, I'm a materialist. It doesn't matter. Anything. I'm a stream enter. I mean, that too is a, is a gossamer thread. I'm a nun, I'm a, I'm a monk, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a lay person. It doesn't matter what it is, anything at all. Because it has not only that clinging, immediately it has identification. This bhikkhu identifies with equanimity, which is very nice. I mean, everybody should be so lucky. But it is still total prevention from Nibbana any identification who I am what I can do where I'm at what I'm going to do and this is very important not only because we may get you know because of Nibbana because it prevents peacefulness in any situation whatever it is if we don't have peacefulness it can be quite sure it's due to hanging on to something no matter what it is 
state of mind or a former problem or whatever it is. So, now, Ananda again. But, then about sir, well, I like those questions that start with but. When that bhikkhu clings, what does he cling to? You see, Ananda is very good because he asks question after question. He never stops until he really knows. And um, because he's not enlightened, his questions are really down to earth. You know, they're really like our questions. To the base consisting of neither perception nor non-perception, Ananda. So, he asks him, what's he clinging to? Why can't he get to Nibbana? Well, he's clinging to this last base. He's really having equanimity there. Because everything is, you know, everything is sort of cut off. But he's clinging there. But another reason why he's going around in circles on this, also the Buddha, is the fact that, which I've mentioned before, that in the Brahminical tradition, this was the highest attainment. And having had this as the highest attainment, the Buddha was trying to show that if you cling to that highest attainment, you're never going to get totally liberated. And this is what was his... Um, um, the, the new or I should say this was his the formation of the teaching so if you cling it seems venerable sir that when this bhikkhu clings he clings to the best fuel for clinging when this bhikkhu clings ananda he clings to the best fuel for clinging for this is the best fuel for clinging namely the base consisting of neither perception or non-perception so we are not um, fooling around with any kind of clinging such as, you know, motor cars, refrigerators and so forth that we have these days. We, we are having a clinging to the highest state of mind which is known to anyone. But the Buddha is very adamant that even the clinging to this highest state of mind is going to prevent one from being totally liberated. Now, it's going to tell Ananda how to get to Nibbana which is very nice because we'd like to know too. Here, Ananda, a bhikkhu enters upon this way. If I were not and not were mine, I shall not be and not be mine. And what there is has come to be that I abandon. And thus he attains equanimity. He does not relish the equanimity, welcome it or accept it. When he does not do that, then his consciousness does not depend on that equanimity or cling to it. A bhikkhu who is unaffected by clinging attains Nibbāna Ananda. Now the Buddha gives other discourses on attaining Nibbāna, but he always comes to this point. No clinging means Nibbāna. Now when we don't cling to equanimity, we don't cling to any state of mind. And even if the bhikkhu says, if this were, if not were mine and I were not, he still considers himself to have equanimity. So the intellectual statement which he is offering there is counteracted um, by his actually wanting equanimity or wanting to keep it. Because that is mine, my equanimity. Now this is so subtle in the mind that it might be hard to notice. But what the Buddha has explained at other times is this that the total giving up of clinging means the total giving up 
of any wish for personal identity or experience. Willingness to completely let go of that which may be the remnant of one's being. Now at that time the remnant is equanimity. Early on it would have been an identification with infinite space or infinite consciousness. I am infinite consciousness. Well, it's very nice. It's nice to be infinite consciousness. But it doesn't do anything for one because one comes out of it again. It is not possible to live daily life within infinite consciousness. So one comes out of it again and one is probably vastly improved to what one was, but one is certainly not liberated. So the clinging aspect is particularly to personal experience, identity of any kind. So it is a moment, the letting go is a moment which is not just intellectually um, recognizable. In this sutta, and this is why there's a great deal of confusion about this, in the world today, naturally, two and a half thousand years after the Master died. In this sutta it appears as if this is intellectually possible. If I were not and not were mine, well, I mean, you know, if we look at it three times, we know it. You know, if I wasn't here and if nothing belonged to me and if uh, I wasn't going to be here in the future and nothing belonged to me in the future and if everything I had was, I'd abandon it, well, I'd be enlightened, okay? But it isn't like that at all. It's got to be done. It's got to go from the mind to the heart. It's an absolute step to be taken. And it is fruitful to know what the step is. Although there are those geniuses, spiritual geniuses, who apparently, because of former life experiences, are able to let go at a certain moment in their life and do experience something like that. They're few and far between. Ramana Maharshi in southern India was one of them. He had an enlightenment or the enlightenment experience at the age of 16 spontaneously when he was still a schoolboy and went and lived in a cave after that. Actually in, a, in one of the caves in a temple in Truvanamalai. But this is very rare. It is very fruitful to know that it depends upon the idea in the mind because of the experiences of the jhanas in which there isn't a person to be found neither in space consciousness or nothingness there's no person to be found because of these experiences that the illusion of self of this identity person can be shed through not clinging to it. Now, I can say, I'm not clinging to this clock. I can say that easily, couldn't I? But if I don't give it away, it's not believable, is it? If I keep it. Well, it's the same with this. But that doesn't mean suicide or anything like that. It means an actually giving up in a meditative moment, which is a still point of the mind. The mind isn't working. 
No, that's not right. When the mind isn't moving, sorry, not not working, when the mind isn't moving, at that moment to actually go through the eye of a needle and leaving behind that which one has had as one's ballast up to then. Being willing to drown in unborn emptiness, if you like. There's nothing there, myself included. Now that would be the proof of a pudding if one can do that. Therefore, this is not to be construed to be an intellectual exercise. These are the guidelines. It has to be done. And this doing is in the past moment. So, the jhanas facilitate this so greatly that the Buddha never, not in a single discourse, ever gave these guidelines for Nibbana without the jhanas. Not ever. We have to get to that point of letting go gradually and slowly. We can't from one moment to the next be me and then not be me. And how am I going to do this? It's an impossibility. The mind just can't handle that sort of thing. Um, this is why also the drug experience has very often been an absolute disaster because the mind not being trained or having been used to any other consciousness than the ordinary one, all of a sudden gets a change of consciousness and can't handle it, doesn't know what to do with it. So there have been quite disastrous results from that. Not that the change of consciousness isn't possible and quite um, a good thing to have, but it's got to become naturally, step by step. And this is what happens in the jhanas. First, the mind is totally unconcentrated, goes all over the place, has sensual desires. And then it focuses, it comes together. And then eventually it can let go of sensual desires, at least during the meditation. And as it becomes more used to that, it lets go of sensual desires more and more. And as it gets used to that, it can also let go of the perceiving of them the rising of them actually the perceiving of them is when they arise so we can let one can let go of that too now that's already a very fine state of the mind and then we can let go of the desire to have form any kind of form and the perceiving of that and we can let go of perceiving and as we keep on letting go, letting go, the mind is used to letting go. And it actually experiences in those three higher jhanas an insight into a reality which is not the last reality and the absolute one, because the absolute one is, as I said, unborn emptiness, which does not have infinite mind or infinite space in it. But at least this gives one already an inkling. The difference between personal mind and infinite mind is already big enough in order to show one where one is going. Is this clear?
any questions. Hmm? Right now, from a practical standpoint, we can also say that at the beginning of each meditation, we can actually make a determination. I'm going to let go. I'm not going to cling to anything. Now, what does that mean in the first instance? Not clinging to any thoughts. That's the first thing. Then it means not clinging to any of the good states either, but going to the next one. Not clinging to any of the things that were familiar to me, but willing to go into unfamiliar spaces. If one hasn't done the higher jhanas before, these are unfamiliar spaces. Not clinging, letting go. The more we let go in this practice, the easier it is to let go in daily life. The more we let go in daily life, the less problems we have. There are no problems that are not connected to clinging. They don't exist. So this is a meditative um, way of helping us. It is a uh, way in our life to help us, and it's a way to Nibbana. And the interesting thing is also that when one hears about these jhanas and has never done them, one thinks that this is a magic, miracle, whatever, mystery, um, superhuman. Well, when one's done them, done them, one knows it isn't. It's just letting go of the other rubbish. That's all. The same goes for Nibbana. It always talked about or read about with awe or total lack of interest because it's so far away who could possibly be interested I'm more interested in getting my relationships in order or something like that it's nonsense what one mind can do all minds can do there is only universal mind there's no way to say that one can do it and one can't. It's a matter of purification. And what is purification? Nothing but letting go. Non-clinging. Non-clinging to the vast, which include also resistances, rejections. It all comes down to the same thing. Now, of course, it's easier said than done. It's even easier read than done. But... If we don't have guidelines, it will be even more difficult. So what we look at in the Buddha's words are the guidelines. It is the, uh, I'll call it a road map. The road map which is mapping the pathway out in detail. It has road signs, landmarks. It doesn't always tell each step. But, with the best of roadmaps, if we don't start traveling, it's not going to do us any good. That's the famous armchair travelers. They know the roadmap by heart. But, that's about all. However, having written a map like that, or spoken a map like that, one can assume rightly that that country that is being described exists and if one has a bit of courage 
Oh, I love Dukkha. Both together is the best. Mm-hmm. One will want to explore it. One will want to see the country for oneself. So one's got to go along the road and just keep going. Plodding along. It's the best way to plod. Some people don't have to, but they're also well. Most people have to plod and just go step by step. And it's quite permissible once in a while to stand at some corner and look back and see how far one has come. It's quite encouraging. One has a long way to go and when all one sees is that long distance ahead, it can sometimes be a bit depressing. But if one looks back and sees, oh, I have come quite a ways already, that can be quite enjoyable. It's quite all right to do that. Which means looking back two years, three years, and seeing whether and how much one has already changed. It's impossible to meditate and actually become concentrated even once in a while and not change. Such a thing is not possible. And if one wants to actually practice some of the Buddha's teachings, change is inevitable. So one can look back once in a while and have a have a look. Now, any questions on this? No, I always have a question. I about these path moments, how they could be recognized if you think you've got a Bible. And also, I mean, like they, from some of the descriptions that you've given, they seem quite similar to some of the jhanas. I wonder if there's any rule of thumb that one could apply it. Well, they are quite similar. The the similarity lies in the fact that the past moment is a jhanic moment. However, the jhanas are long-lasting. Long-lasting meaning 10 minutes, 20 minutes, 30 minutes, hour, 2 hours, 3 hours. Past moment is one mind moment. It's a flash, like lightning. Okay, what else? Um, fruit moment like two mind moments after recognizes the experience so it has to be the recognition of experience the onus of recognition lies on oneself no teacher can do it for one can confirm it teachers can confirm it the fruit moment is the one where the experience Experience is being recognized as having been one where one shed for a moment all notion of being, all desire for being, all attempts at being, anything, and had returned at that moment. It's already really descriptive what I'm saying now because it's not necessarily the experience, it's a description and had returned at that moment to the unborn matrix of total nothingness <laughs> what a description <laughs> so that fruit moment is the moment of recognition, the past moment is not because there's no observer 
because at that past moment everything is shed and one is actually returning to neither being nor not being non-being one could say non-being yes returning to non-being but then the fruit moment recognizes that and said that's what I've done and then after the fruit moment comes the review now that may take a little time in a mind which is very quick connects quick the review comes immediately in a mind which is slower and has to orientate itself first it may take an hour or two doesn't matter the reviewing is has anything changed in me do I feel different what's my feeling have I got any different feeling now that may happen immediately immediately after the food moment so you divide it into three parts past fruit review past experience fruit understanding review what has changed oh yes how do I feel now and then of course the reviewing should go on whether this change that one has noticed has remained within one because if one doesn't do that and doesn't keep re-emphasizing what has happened it goes into the back of the consciousness and doesn't remain livable it's there but it isn't being lived it's dangerous the the, um, difference between just the understood experience and the insight is the regeneration of that understood experience so the understanding of it one cannot um, regenerate the experience one never gets the same one twice one gets the next one until the other hand doesn't need it anymore however there's another thing to this um, having the experience and recognizing in the fruit moment how enormously peaceful it was how it was the epitome and final fulfillment of all that one could ever have wished one can go back into the experience at will and going back into at will have what the Buddha called the bliss of Nibbana again you see the Arahant does not live in the bliss of Nibbana he couldn't function you cannot function without being in the bliss of Nibbana there is no being now the Buddha was teaching for 45 years that can only be done with your being but obviously in order to rest and have peace and enjoyment and keep the body going better he could enter into Nibbana at will and stay in it when he wanted to and he would come out and do his job again and that can be done at all stages stream entry once returner non-returner arahant most effective of course at arahant but the others are also useful for that so we can go back into the experience in order to have an um, rest in it but the actually experience of it does not happen again that moment we can go back into 
through the fruit, through the understanding and the memory, we can bring it back to feel like that. Okay? And the reviewing is necessary many, many times, uh, not to forget, in order to anchor the new way of feeling and being into this consciousness so it doesn't get pushed into the back. It's like a language one has learned once. If one isn't using it, it gets pushed way in the back and it takes a fair bit of doing to dig it out again. It's not lost, but it's so far back. So here we need to speak the language to ourselves. Now, how to do that without a teacher? Most people in the world today would have to do it without a teacher. There are hardly any left. Um, if one has the good fortune to have a teacher, write it down and tell it to the teacher when you see the teacher again. <laughs> it's the only thing I can suggest. Um, that's a lot clearer Yes, the, the past moment which happens and then the fruit that it organizes it and then the review. Yes. And it, 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 is quite, it is quite different, yes. The jhanas are still, no matter how exalted they are, they are still happening to me. And afterwards I can say, hey, me wasn't there. But who is saying that? Yeah, me saying that, that me wasn't there. It was very nice when me wasn't there. That's why the jhanas are our um, lead into really letting go. Because now we know from this experience in the jhanas that there's nothing comparable to letting go of me. But how anybody, and this is being, um, you know, mumbled about and talked about and taught also, how anybody could let go without knowing that this is the best thing one can do through personal experience, I wouldn't know. And the Buddha certainly didn't teach it. Not in this tradition. I don't know about the other traditions that well. Although I can speak for the Tibetan tradition, because I read and um, uh, studied it a bit, and although they are not called the jhanas and are not taught in directly, the, their old teachers also uh, were teaching in the past. I don't know what's uh, been done, but in the past. Right, what else? Anything else? So now I just read the end of this, huh? I read Ananda's uh, praise of the Buddha. It is wonderful, Venerable Sir, it's marvelous. For each stage of attainment, it seems, the crossing of the flood has been told to us by the Blessed One. But, Venerable Sir, what is the Noble One's liberation? Ah, he's not giving up yet, he wants to know exactly. 
So the Buddha has explained everything, he says every stage, but now he wants to know what is it like, huh? Okay. Here Ananda, a noble disciple, considers thus. Sensual desires here and now, and in lives to come, perception of sensual desire here and now, and in lives to come, form here and now, and in lives to come, perception of form here and now, and of forms in life to come, perception of the imperturbability of the base consisting of nothingness, of the base consisting of neither perception nor non-perception, that is embodiment. That is as far as embodiment extends. That's an interesting way of explaining, of saying this, isn't it? Wouldn't have occurred to me to say it like that. But even the highest jhana is an embodiment. It's an embodiment of one's own state of mind. One's own state of mind is in the eighth jhana. So it's an embodiment. And that's as far as it will go. But the liberation, that's the deathless. That is to say, the liberation of mind through not clinging. Now the deathless, it's called the deathless. Nibbana has many synonyms. One of the synonyms for Nibbana is Kema, which means secure, or security. There are many, about 36 synonyms. One is deathless. Why is it deathless? Because nobody's born there. Can't be born in Nibbana, so you can't die. So it's very, it's very often called deathless. But that is to say, the liberation of mind through not clinging. So Ananda, I have shown the way directed to the imperturbable from fourth to fifth and sixth. Yes. Yes. And then it's uh, in seventh and eighth uh, are mentioned separately. I have shown the way directed to the base consisting of nothingness. I have shown the way directed to the base consisting of neither perception or non-perception. I have shown for each stage of attainment the crossing of the flood. I have shown the Noble One's liberation. The crossing of the flood is a synonym which he uses very often. I think I've mentioned already that he used the synonym for the Dharma as a raft with which we can cross the flood. And the flood is this uh, birth and death affair here uh, in which we are constantly in danger to drown in our defilements. That's why it's called a flood. So um, he has shown the way to these uh, different states of mind and to liberation. Ananda, what should be done for his disciples out of compassion by a master who seeks their welfare and has compassion on them? That I have done for you, Ananda. There are these roots of trees, there are these empty huts. Meditate, but it can also be rendered as practice jhana ananda. Do not delay lest you later regret it. This is our message for you. This is what the Blessed One said. The Venerable Ananda was satisfied and he delighted in the Blessed One's word. Yes, it says here in the notes, which I didn't see earlier, that imperturbable is a term used mostly for all the four formless uh, jhanas, 
but here in this particular sutta it is only used for the fourth of the fine material form and the first two formless ones which is a little different but it doesn't uh, alter the matter particularly one can see quite clearly from this and all other suttas that the way to liberation leads to meditation doesn't it and the meditation leads to the jhanas and I would say that what one mind can do all minds can do to get back once more to getting into the jhanas here a very nice way is shown actually namely the consideration the insight ahead of each jhana now this one this one starts at the fourth jhana but let's go back to the first jhana we can do that with the same consideration we can use the insight first to get into the first jhana if that is still a difficulty that sensual desires are useless even the arising of them is useless that the form is only a problem that the um, all our perceptions are giving us difficulty because they are disturbing for us so let's just become inner directed to get into the first jhana if that hasn't happened yet the mind needs to be inner directed within and not without all thoughts go outward all ideas go outward even perceptions are still outward directed although they go a little nearer to inside but in order to get to the to the uh, concentrated state of mind and stays with oneself what's happening within all the states of the jhanas are happening within and that mind sits well brain sits is an is an illusion mind covers the whole of us that's why the buddha described in another sutta if you remember that sitting in these jhanas is like being clothed in white from head to foot or being drenched with it like water drenches a soap powder mind is everywhere so go within and find that attention to the inner state as we get more and more and more quiet in the daily activity it shouldn't present a great problem first and second and first and second jhanas are not um, difficult especially in their more superficial states in order to have them very deep might be a little more difficult but one of the difficulties I think that the ordinary mind is uh, confronted with is the fact that it's not used to being inside it's only used to being outside thinking thinking about the past and the future so in order to get 
inside it's got to change its habits it's got to become inner directed and in a last analysis everything that happens to us in this life all happens within it depends upon our reaction whatever is going on outside it's got nothing to do with it nothing at all everything happens within because outside stuff is all the triggers and if we disregard them they have no bearing on us and some of those triggers are called Mara in fact most of them are called Mara there are very few of them that aren't called Mara and he's constantly laughing and grinning because he's so successful (laughs) (laughs) having a whale of a time okay any questions about anything whatever it may be But I'm not saying that our response is real. I'm saying our response creates our inner life. Yes. And because none of us respond equally to the next person, we all may have the same trigger, but a totally different inner life. So whatever that trigger is, well, that's what it is. But here, this is where it happens. You know that story I was telling about the four fellows in the forest? They're all in the same forest. But they're all having a totally different response. And this is why often we find in our New Age uh, teachings that uh, we should look at all the joyful aspects and see how beautiful the world is and watch the the sunsets and enjoy the wildflowers and uh, be one with nature and, uh, you know, dance and uh, be happy. Well, it's fine, you know, have a different response except it fails to take into account that if you haven't let go yet and you're still clinging to that stuff you're going to be mightily disappointed because it's not possible to have it that way so that particular aspect of teaching is alright up to a point and then one should sit down and meditate and see that no state of mind which is mine can be kept no matter how nice it is so what I'm saying is that these things teach one a different response which is valid enough except it doesn't go all the way anything else? Um, I was wondering what the Buddha meant um, when he says that one either um, prepares for arahantship or prepares for uh, abiding in the imperturbable. Um, is he just meaning one sets one's mind upon either of those tracks? Yes. 
Right. You see, if one sets one's mind to go to the imperturbable means that one is satisfied with that particular attainment, let's say it's the um, an infinity of consciousness, and says, well, that's fine, you know, and uh, one gets reborn in the high, in the Brahma realm on that level of infinity of consciousness. But the person who isn't satisfied, and that would be the Buddha's um, disciples, because they heard different from him, would say, well, no, this is not good enough, and then go, go on with it and let that go, the imperturbable, and let everything go until you finally come to seeing that, you know, without clinging. This in the Buddha's time was an important teaching because of the fact that the Brahmin, Brahminical teaching uh, gave great emphasis to staying with these states, particularly the last one of course. And uh, in the last one also talking about becoming one with Atman. You see, well, it's all right, you let uh, yourself go, but you're sitting in Atman, you know, it's, it's all right. So it's again being, uh, you know, part of universal consciousness. And Buddha said, no, you got to go beyond that. Mm-hmm. Can you explain in the teaching what the Heart and mind. Yeah, it seems often it's, you know, like the, the teaching may the teaching may come into mind, and then mm. um, one explores it as well as one can, but it's got to connect with the heart. Yes. So can you say that? Yes, but this is my way of expressing myself. The Buddha used the word chitta, and the chitta contains feeling, perception, mental formation and sense consciousness, the four aspects of mind. Feeling is the aspect which we call heart. Oh, right. So it's not feeling with the senses? No. It's a sense consciousness is part of mind, and then perceiving it, and then also the thinking about it. But feeling goes with it in the Buddhist teaching under Chitta. And so in the translations, especially some of the newer ones, not in this one particularly, but in many of the translations we can find heart and mind juxtaposed. Sometimes it's called heart, sometimes it's called mind. Um, I don't do that, or I try to do something else, because I personally find that easy, easier to understand from my standpoint, and have found it easier to under- be understood by others that what we have in the mind as a thinking process, what we have in the heart as a feeling process. So I also like to explain that the understood experience, that the experience is a feeling and the understanding is a mind state. Uh, yeah. So when, when one is in contact with heart, one can recognize it because there's hardly any thought attached to it. Its mm. feeling is direct. Mm-hmm. Going back to the uh, awareness, feeling and awareness, almost mm-hmm. become one and the same. Yes. Yeah. So past moment is feeling, yeah. fruit moment is mental recognition. Yes. 
See, I tried to explain that in Sri Lanka, and people couldn't understand it because they're not used to using those, that terminology. In the Abhidhamma, it's, uh, there are only mind states. There are 89 different mind states. But this, to me, is experientially correct. And ex- in an explanatory way, it seems to me cutting through a lot of difficulties when we look at it in, those, in that way. It seems to me that it's much clearer than anything else. And experientially, it, it's correct uh, from what I know. And heart and mind is what we do have. We have feeling and thinking. And in English, we, we do divide it up into heart and mind. So they both have to be uh, involved. We can't leave one out and just use the other. So when we get both involved, we have that. That clear? Yeah, that's clear. Okay, that's good. And are you saying that um, there are cases where people have past moments and then because they haven't um, regenerated the experience, if they've gone back into the mind... Into the back of the mind. Back of the mind. And, and it stays there. Um, what eventually happens? Does then something trigger it again? Or possibly, possibly. You know, also, I've heard teachers say that enlightenment can be lost. Is that what they actually mean? No, no. never, not in this tradition, mm. never. But it can take seven lives to get it re-triggered. And if you keep it in consciousness, you're definitely going to make tracks in this life. And also, if you cover it in the back of your consciousness and not in the front of it, um, you can't live accordingly. It's not part of you. You see, it's something that happened, which cannot be lost, but um, it doesn't really, isn't really available to you. And it's, uh, it's not common that you have with anyone who has a but um, it would be very uncommon. But it certainly can happen for people who um, have a spontaneous awakening like that. And sometimes this spontaneous awakening can also uh, trigger a kind of uh, fear or uncertainty so that it's uh, deliberately pushed in the back of the mind. It's it's rare. It doesn't happen often. And it's rare enough even with a teacher, never mind without a teacher. So, it's very important to regenerate. And that does not only hold true for an enlightenment experience. That holds true for all insights. Any kind of insight which is worth keeping in mind has to be brought back to the front of the mind, so to say, which is not a really good way of explaining it, but it's it's descriptive, so that it becomes part of one's being, remembering again and again. That's why people have, you know, signboards and things hanging up on the wall, reading books, listening to tapes, bringing it back 
whatever it is that one has actually uh, understood oneself to bring it back often enough and particularly when a problem arises in the mind to bring back then maybe the understanding well letting go is going to be take care of dukkha and then actually trying to do it I'm not losing all awareness of the teaching just at the moment when it's needed so the more often one brings it back before it's needed the more naturally it's there when it's needed and insight only becomes insight when it has been anchored in the mind so that it's always available at on call all the time I read um, an article in a magazine and it was about this guy who um, he had an anesthetic in the hospital and after that anesthetic his consciousness was completely changed mm. and um, I mean he described it as, as God consciousness oh really as he's coming from a Christian or a sort of Western yes. understanding but he said he, he was um, he was just totally changed by that and and um, but he, he said you know still had sensual desires and things like that and mm. I was just wondering what happens to the mind in in anaesthetic. Oh, I have no idea. But what did what did he think was God consciousness? Well, he he had become after the anesthetic um, a much more loving person mm. and that just carried on in his day to day life oh. um, you've that God consciousness well that's I mean that's, I'm not putting down that guy I'm just trying to remember mm. um, you know the impression of this article that I read quite some time ago mm. and I think and he was it was in a New Age magazine and he was obviously really trying to understand this experience but he didn't have something like Buddhism behind him to give him a context for it and um, well I don't really know what happens in an anesthetic at all I haven't mm. got a clue mm. I mean I have absolutely no medical background at all mm. uh, I, I wouldn't dare to uh, to guess you know and I'm sure it's a fluke because otherwise would to happen to everybody who has surgery <laughs> Oh yes, obviously in this case it was with this man, mm. but I'm just wondering mm. where, you know, How where anesthetic sends the mind. I have no idea. Mm. I don't know what what happened to him. No idea. How can you say? How can you be sure it was the anesthetic that you called? Oh, who knows? Yes. Yes. Now you see. Mm? Could have been a dying, an actual dying experience. Well, that's yeah. right. Because I was just going to say that. Um, I have read some very interesting books, um, Life After Life, Life After Death, and both were written by a doctor, medical doctor. And what he describes are what his patients have told him after they had had a near-death experience. In other words, they were clinically dead. And he, as a doctor, was of course duty bound to bring them back to life um, so and every one of them told an almost identical story which um, there were there were enough differences to make it very interesting 
but each one was furious at the doctor for bringing them back. They had they were so nice where they were, and there's this stupid doctor working so hard, sweat is running down his face, trying to bring them back to life, which they didn't want at all. Um, they, was, they all saw themselves lying in the bin, and the nurses running around, and the doctor running around, being, you know, working very hard, and everybody excited. And they wandered off then, the mind, the mind wandered off, and got into a very beautiful state of peace and calm and harmony, and some of them saw some loved ones in the distance, and um, it was all, you know, sort of paradisical. And a few of them, including one man whom I met one time, said that later, after this had happened and they were all back in normal life and everything, that they had changed their whole attitude. They had become much more loving, accepting and um, giving and no longer so self-centered. Yeah, could have been that. Yes, could have been that. Because this was um, more than once experience that was recorded Mm -hmm. that these people found this. Not everybody found that. In fact, not all had paradisical experiences either. Some got quite um, frightened and worried and upset. But all were mad at the doctor, each one of them. (laughs) So that should tell the medical profession something, I hope, (laughs) to leave us alone when we're dying. (laughs) There's only one thing to do, and that's die. So um, that might have been, you know, what happened there also. Please put the attention on the breath for just a few moments. Think of a very beloved person in your life and let the feeling for that person arise in you. And then transfer that same feeling to yourself. No difference between the beloved person and yourself. Fill yourself with that same feeling. Surround yourself with it. Let the feeling for the beloved person arise in you again. Let it fill you completely. And then 
transfer that same feeling to everyone here. Fill everyone with it. Let the feeling for the beloved person arise in you again. Feel it totally within you and then transfer the same feeling to all your near and dear ones. Again, let the feeling for the beloved person arise in you. Let your heart be totally consumed with that loving feeling. And then transfer the same feeling to all your friends. for the beloved person come up again be totally filled with it and then transfer the same feeling to the people you work with your neighbors at home acquaintances people you've seen here and there. Let them arise before your mind's eye and let them have the same feeling that you have for your beloved person. No difference between beings.
let your beloved person be totally in your heart feel the love and then transfer the same feeling to anyone whom you find difficult feeling for your beloved person fill you let no part of yourself be without it then let it flow out of your heart to beings everywhere near and far human or otherwise those we see we don't see all beings all existence let your love permeate it bring your attention back to yourself and let there be no difference between the love for your beloved person and the love you have for yourself feel the warmth penetrate you and engulf you from head to toe no limits immeasurable
and having filled yourself with it completely let it come out of every pore of the body to fill space and other beings May there be love amongst all beings. 